This program has been made possible through the support of Cruise, driving cities forward through their autonomous vehicle development. Learn more about how Cruise is transforming the future of transportation through improving our cities by building safe, shared, and all-electronic self-driving cars. Visit them online at getcruise.com. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Doug Powell, the uh, co-chair of the Rehabilitation Issues Task Force. And before we get going, I'm going to kick it over to Maria and ask her to give you the starting code for the CEs. All right. Thank you, Doug. The starting code is the numbers 10839. Again, the numbers are 10839. Great. Thanks a lot. And welcome again. So, um, and we definitely want to welcome um, Ray Hopkins from the Virginia uh, Department for Blind and Vision Impaired. Uh, Joe Xavier from uh, the Department of um, Rehabilitation Services in California, and Dan Fry from uh, the um, Rehabilitation Services of um, New Hampshire. And they will give you uh, their titles and and a little bit more in just a second. Um, We also have two other moderators who are going to be asking questions, and uh, uh, that is... um, (coughs) Uh, my co-chair, um, Chris Hunsinger from Pennsylvania, and um, Mitch Pomerantz, our uh, former president of ACB from Pasadena, California. So uh, welcome to all of you. And Chris, I'll, I'll kick it over to you for the first question for our panelists. Okay. Thank you, Doug. Um First thing I want to say is we're going to do these in alphabetical order for this question. Uh, the question, first question is, um, and I'll start with Dan. Uh, how did you, when and why did you decide to become a state director of, of any of these VR services? I'm sure you had a thought that you wanted to be one before the job was posted, but when and how did you come to that decision? Well, thank you, Chris, for that question. I think it's always important for us to have a sense of why we are where we are. I grew up um, very poor um, on a sharecropping piece of land with my paternal grandparents in South Carolina. They were loving of me, but they were not optimistic about what I could achieve as a blind child. I had gone to public school before my parents passed away, but when I was sent to live with my grandparents, they simply said that was out of the question. Having been discouraged and then having had people surround me as mentors at the School for the Blind and through VR at the Commission for the Blind, I came to understand that my grandparents' expectations weren't accurate. And I was given what I've often referred to as sort of the golden keys of liberation that would allow me to succeed and pursue my career. And I, I concluded that if I were ever in a position to do something similar for someone else, 
that that's what I'd like to do. So very early on, even before I went to law school, uh, although I knew I would find my law degree helpful in the administration of VR, um, I knew at some stage I would want to direct a VR agency. And I've had the privilege of directing um, the agencies at the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Vision Impaired from 2013 to 2018, and as administrator of services for the blind and vision impaired inside the New Hampshire Bureau of VR from 2019. And today is actually my second year anniversary on this job. Thanks, Chris. Sure. Okay, Ray, you're up. Tell us your tale. Oh, well, <laughs> that, uh, that could get kind of sorted, but good afternoon. <laughs> no, come I, on. We have some qualifiers here. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, first, for uh, allowing me to be part of the panel. Uh, as mentioned, I'm Ray Hopkins, Commissioner of Virginia's Department for the Blind and Vision Impaired. And I didn't have the idea of becoming an administrator uh, of an agency for the blind or blind services as early as Dan did. But I have to say, a seed was planted when I was in graduate school. Uh, I received my master's degree in rehabilitation of the blind from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. And my advisor and mentor, uh, Pat Besson Smith, in one of the sessions where we were reviewing um, my status in the program and where I might want to go. And uh, after I graduated, she asked me if I had ever considered uh, the idea of becoming an administrator of services for the blind somewhere. And she was telling me that she could envision that. Up until that point, I had no concept other than um, attaining my master's degree and going to work as a rehabilitation professional. Uh, but she did uh, plant the seed that made me start thinking about anyway, where I might want to take my career professionally. I had the opportunity in 1993 um, to become the administrator of the Division of Visual Services uh, in the newly formed Oklahoma Department of Rehabilitation Services and um, left that agency uh, about uh, nine and a half years later and um, did other things, but in in July of 2008, I was uh, appointed by Virginia Governor Timothy Kane to the position of Commissioner of the Virginia Department for the Blind and Vision Impaired, um, where I am today, and a position that I uh, greatly enjoy and uh, work with the department that I'm very proud of. Thank you. Um, so, Joe Xavier, um, can you tell us what got you to where you are? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, hello to everyone uh, from around the country, wherever you may be. And it's great to be on this panel with uh, Dan and Ray and, and the rest of you. 
So my path is a bit different than um, Dan's and, uh, and Rage's. You can imagine um, different paths for different folks. So I have been around um, VR since um, the end of my high school years and never, never contemplated, never thought of becoming um, the director of the department. I spent 14 years self-employed in the business enterprise program, selling burgers and fries and bacon and eggs. And then about 21, 23 years ago, I joined the staff of um, the Department of Rehabilitation and spent about 10 years in various managerial roles within the department. And then in 2008, I became an executive for the Department of Rehabilitation, um, spent time as the executive over the independent living sections Mm -hmm. program, as well as our specialized services division, which is where the blind visually impaired services are housed here in California. And then in uh, the very end of 2013, um, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and suggested I should become the director of the department. I literally pulled my glasses off and looked at them like, are you drinking or what? But the, the short answer to how I got here, it really was not uh, aspirational or planned path. It was simply a path of opportunity and uh, being ready for that opportunity and taking advantage of that opportunity. Well, it's always good when someone, when that opportunity, not when that opportunity knocks and you're there to reach out to touch it. So it's as, as good, as good a reason as any to get there. And just to clarify, as we move on, uh, Joe, you are a the commissioner of a uh, the director of a, a combined orga, uh, organization, right? Combined visual yes. vision that and is other disabilities. Cal- yes, that is correct. California is a combined agency with a um, division that pr- provides categorical services to the blind, visually impaired. And Ray, you, you're specifically for blind and vision impaired. Uh, Dan. And I am uh, the director of the um, statewide blind and vision impaired program inside um, the combined agency in New Hampshire. Great, thanks. Mitch. All right, very good. Well, I get to do something that I do uh, on a frequent basis anyway. I'm going to do reverse alphabetical order. And the next question, I'll start by asking Joe, and and I sit on the Department of Rehabilitation's Blind Advisory Committee, which advises our Blind Field Services Division. So Joe is used to me asking tough questions. So we will start with Joe and ask him, are services provided by state rehabilitation agencies to blind and low vision persons equal to, better than, or worse than they were prior to the uh, implementation of WIOA? So let me set a little context for that answer, um, at least for here in California. So if anything, I think that employment has become more focused than it was before. The types of services that we would provide, services that would otherwise be available remain largely unchanged um, for the employment side of the conversation. Same thing for the older individuals who are blind and the business price program. 
What really has changed here in California with the passage of WIOA is that VR does not provide um, VR support slash dollars to fund independent living, otherwise known as homemaker cases. That really came to a halt with the passage of WIOA. So the biggest shift that I think we would see would be as a result of that. And then obviously there's additional implications from the application of student services, but I'll, I'll defer that conversation for down the road. Back to you, Mitch. Okay. All right, Ray. So uh, my response is somewhat similar to Joe's in that um, I believe that WIOA has certainly enhanced our employment services. Um, we are now more engaged with other um, public agencies involved in uh, workforce services. We are more uh, directly involved with businesses and employers uh, providing direct services to businesses. We certainly stepped up our game as far as our business relations uh, efforts go. And we are definitely providing more services for our uh, consumers in terms of um, the types of things that we do in terms of um, workplace training um, opportunities for work experiences. Um, where it has changed is our population of uh, our clientele actually has significantly changed and we are now serving a majority of persons uh, on our VR caseloads who are Twenty-five years of age and younger, so definitely a younger population. We certainly are providing more, and I would say higher quality transition services uh, for that uh, younger population. Uh, what that has meant is the Virginia Department for the Blind and Vision Impaired has had to resort uh, to enacting its order of selection for services policy, which basically means we've had to establish a wait list and prioritize services to individuals with the most significant disabilities. So in effect, <clears throat> um, while we're serving more younger people, um, other people have to wait longer for services. Um, as a result of the pandemic and some changes in how we were spending money, uh, we have been able to work through and basically eliminate our wait list um, for now, um, but I suspect it will come back. So I guess the, to sum it up is for those who are receiving um, vocational rehabilitation services, uh, employment-related services, yes, I think they are better, they're more focused, and there are greater connections with employers. But 
the quarter selection means that we are not serving as many and as rapidly as we would like. Um, our IL services and other services are minimally impacted because we have uh, always enjoyed a uh, robust uh, program for rehabilitation teaching and independent living services. Uh, and those services, services continue, if anything, uh, there's more emphasis on those. So we, we are able to provide IL services um, without impact on our VR services. Thank you, Ray. And Dan. Um, thank you um, very much, um, Mitch. Um, my answer, too, will be similar to what you've heard before with, with some slight variation. Um, I, I think it, it's important that we all go back and remember how WIOA was adopted. And the truth is... Um, that it was adopted largely in the in the dark of night and um, over the course of a weekend and really without significant stakeholder um, input. I presume my colleagues on this panel would agree with that. I think that because it was adopted in something of a vacuum, that the intention of requiring VR agencies to devote 15% of our federal grant to um, pre-ETS and transition age students uh, has resulted in some limited opportunities, uh, slightly limited opportunities for the adults that we have traditionally served. But at the same time, I think it has enabled us to deliver significantly more creative services to our pre-ETs and transition students. And so while I, uh, while I think that the adult services have been constrained to some extent, um, I think we've all found strategies, including um, order of selection uh, when necessary, uh, to make sure that we can be as equitable as we can for our adult consumers given our obligation to uh, respond to our, or to meet our pre-ETS obligations. Um, and yet, I, and I also think that for those who are born blind uh, from childhood, this will be a tremendous advantage for them because they'll be able to access VR significantly earlier than I might have when I was coming through VR in the early 80s. Um, so that's, that's my response. I think it has certainly changed our focus some. It has strengthened our services to youth. And we are all working hard to do what we can to make sure that adults don't get left behind. And like uh, Ray referenced, one other strategy that I'm employing in New Hampshire um, is to use our independent living older blind program, which is a, we're a minimally funded state because we're so small, but to use some of those funds to help some of those older blind individuals who may not want to work, but who do need skill sets. And we've been able to 
work with our state and VR agency to get some additional dollars for those individuals who might have otherwise been disadvantaged by the shift toward pre-ETS. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, gentlemen. Back to you, Doug. Thanks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I'm, go I'm going to focus the question three a little bit different than, than what, what I had distributed to you guys. <clears throat> Uh, partly from the feedback that we had at the practice uh, or the, you know, the pre-meeting meeting that we had, and partly because I, I think that it gets sort of to the heart of what I think the problem is that with the NIB situation, um, uh, competitive integrated employment um, is very strongly focused on in the new law. Um, and actually, a lot of NIB agencies, associated agencies, um, are trying to develop programs that are competitive and integrated by the definition. Um, is this across the board, as far as you know, in terms of uh, nationwide? Because I, I, I talked to I talked to somebody, and in, in, I'll, I'll not say the name, but I talked to somebody in February who said that NIB jobs are not jobs, and. I can't believe that that person has walked into an NIB agency in the last 20 years. Cause I, I know I've been part of that uh, as a disclaimer, I worked for NIB for a while and I did some training in a lot of agencies. And as a matter of fact, I was the, on the advisory council for Virginia industries for the blind for a couple of years. And I've noticed a lot of change in a lot of agencies. Uh, the question I guess I want to ask is, is everybody, on board, are the NIB agencies on board and trying to change their services and how is that affecting their, um, it, it, do, what kind of changes do we need to make in terms of uh, changing the conversation about you know, NIB jobs not being jobs? So I'll start with, um, well, let's start with Dan. Well, thank you very much, Doug. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> a time bomb I just <laughs> threw in your way. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so let me begin by saying that I am a strong proponent of the concept of integrated competitive employment. I think for blind, vision impaired, and deafblind people, who, which is the constituency with which I work most, that integrated competitive employment is the most appropriate placement for anyone. Um, and yet at the same time, I would never presume to say that an NIB position is not a job. I think that comment um, is quite disrespectful. And I think all work has dignity and value. Um, I think that it is fair to say that in each NIB agency, um, assessing whether or not the jobs meet the definition of integrated competitive employment will come down to a, an individual case assessment. Um, the definition is, is reasonably complex and nuanced, um, including um, evaluating whether the pay is comparable to pay in a similar community for similar services. 
um, whether or not you are working with um, solely a disabled population or whether or not your population represents the diversity of the workforce and the like. So I do think that it is conceivable in theory that an NIB agency could offer an integrated competitive um, job, and many do. Um, but I think it's critical that we make sure that they are understanding the definition because I think jobs outside of that definition do harm to our community. And yes, I agree that everyone has the right to exercise her or his own choice. And if you want to work in a non-integrated, non-competitive environment, I think that you, you have the right to do that. You just don't have the right to expect VR to support that. Um, but it doesn't mean that if that is what makes you happy and where you feel most comfortable, that you shouldn't pursue that. And I would be the last person to uh, offer any deflating characterization of that by saying that it's not real work. Everybody who gets up and endeavors to be productive is engaged in something that is dignified and worthy. Um, but I do think that blind, vision impaired, and deafblind people deserve to be in integrated competitive employment because I have seen too often when they were not in that kind of um, open um, definition that many people have languished in environments, have not enjoyed promotions or advancements, and essentially have been in what was fairly called a training program for 30 and 40 years. So those are my thoughts. I hope that's responsive to your question. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Ray. Okay. Um, and first I'll say thank you for calling on Dan first. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I suspect that uh, my position is unique amongst this panel and probably uh, a very rare amongst um, leaders of public VR agencies. So the Virginia Department for the Blind um, has the privilege of serving its customers uh, both by having a vocational rehabilitation program uh, operated under the auspices of the U.S. Department of Education and all that goes with that, um, all of the laws. And we also um, operate the program that Doug alluded to, Virginia Industries for the Blind, which is affiliated with Ability One and National Industries for the Blind. Um, I do not um, value one of those entities over the other. When it comes to our vocational rehabilitation program, um, we embrace, uh, not just accept, but we embrace the concept of competitive integrated employment. Uh, but we also understand that 
that's not that's not a new concept and it has been with us um, since the Clinton administration uh, perhaps there's more emphasis on it now and uh, some things are being uh, defined differently um, but we perform that job by job assessment that uh, Dan alluded to and we do that for the jobs within Virginia Industries for the Blind and for other entities uh, that seek to engage with us and ask us to send our clientele uh, to them for work. What we do is, uh, and if you look at our weekly job announcements, you will see positions uh, listed for Virginia Industries for the Blind. Some of those are, are competitive, integrated positions, uh, positions that are located um, um, outside of the confines of our two manu manufacturing facilities, and some are much more traditional um, ability one uh, type jobs. So we make that determination and we are clear that that's a VR determination. And when other people send things to our staff and say, yeah, we've got X amount of jobs and, you know, they are all competitive, integrated and send your people to us in Pennsylvania or wherever they may be, uh, we don't, we don't act based on somebody else telling us. We do the assessment that we are tasked to do um, under the uh, guidance from the Rehabilitation Services Administration, and we make a case-by-case -case determination. And we also understand that there's, a, that there's value in work, and people make decisions for their own reasons. And if we are working with the consumer who indicates they are interested in pursuing a job um, that is not considered competitive, integrated employment, uh, we don't discourage them from that. We make the referral. Um, but as Dan alluded to, we, uh, as we are uh, directed to do, we close the case as far as VR goes. We no longer provide VR services because we can't use VR money uh, for those uh, jobs that are not considered both competitive and integrated. And the greatest compliment that we have is for example, in our contract management services where we have trouble keeping employees because as we develop them and people get skills, the federal government keeps hiring our staff. Um, so we think that's great. We know that they will not increase the contract because if we pay them better, they won't go to work for them. But um, we believe that um, if, the, if there are places where the concept of competitive integrated employment is negatively impacting agencies, um, it's probably because one, those jobs, those 
specific job by job assessments or perhaps are not happening and to uh, maybe the private agency providing services under ability one um, is not uh, responsive to the concept of looking for jobs that are more integrated, that do engage people um, um, outside of the confines of, uh, you know, the agency's brick and mortar facilities. And that has been our focus since I've been here, and I'm sure it will continue, is uh, because we want people not to just work for us, we want them to be able to have choices to move on and advance their careers. And we think that's best accomplished when they are in the community experiencing jobs around working with and among people who, um, who have disabilities and those without. And I think I'll stop there. So, have, anything, have anything to add? Yeah, so I'm not going to um, restate everything because just in the interest of time, but just emphasize a couple of things and add a, a, a couple of nuances. So absolutely competitive integrated employment. Um, and as Ray has said, determined by VR, not by the agency themselves. And so we very much will look, that, um, look at that on a case-by-case basis and use some of the criteria, uh, illustrated some of the criteria that we would look at there. One thing that I would add here is that in addition to what comes down through the federal funding and the federal legislation, states have also taken legislative action and administrative action to address competitive integrated employment. So when you're listening to this from across the country, um, there is going to be a lot of nuance that, that takes place state by state as an example here in California, um, the administration has taken action, administrative, not legislatively, to address competitive integrated employment is absolutely consistent with the federal regulations and the, you know, and the federal funding, um, but those nuances do exist across the country. So I'll stop there in the interest of time, Doug. Thank you, Joe. Um... Let's move to people. So I, I, I think I asked you, you all to read the, um, the uh, status of rehabilitation, the white paper that ACB endorsed uh, last year. Um, and in it, uh, we, this is my sort of uh, my, my uh, soapbox. Um, in it, we talk about um, ways that rehab is, uh, uh, formed, um, and the, the fact that vocational outcomes is asked as the first intake and, um, services are delivered with that in mind. Whereas in other disability groups, a lot of rehabilitation takes place in the sort of medical model, I guess you'd call it, um, under insurances before, they get to the rehab agency and, and go for work skills. My question is when, when a person goes blind as an adult and they have no idea what they can do, they have no idea what their competencies are, 
and they have no idea what kind of work they can do and whether, you know, whether they'll be successful at it. Is this the time to ask that question about whether you want a vocational outcome when they have, you know, they have no idea Um, or should, should there be a system where basic communication and mobility skills are delivered before we even ask the question of whether, whether you know, of, of employment is a viable outcome for them. I'll start with Joe. So I don't think it's one or the other. I actually think you can do both. Um, so an individual loses their sight that comes to VR and says, I don't know if I can work. I don't know if I should work. Part of our responsibility as a VR um, agency is to really engage that individual and, and really work with them to get to the point where they can do that. That to me is part of developing their employment goal. Um, and we certainly know that we have a number of people that start with one goal, end up with the other. But I think the idea that, you know, we would say to folks, well, if you can't go to work, we can't serve you. I think the idea is, what is it that you would need to go to work? And for that newly blinded individual, it may be some basic independent living skills. By the way, the basic independent living skills that person needs are going to be some of the same skills they need to be in the workplace. Orientation and mobility, use of assistive technology, activities of daily living. So I don't think it's separating one from the other. Now, at the heart of that question is, what do we do for those individuals that cannot or choose not to go to work? Um, and how do we ensure that they have that opportunity to live in their community with purpose and dignity, just like everyone else? And I think legitimately, um, that is the question that we should all continue to address. Um, and that question, frankly, here in California, we have been working to really leverage other systems to provide services. And it's bringing the categorical specialized skill into systems sometimes. You mentioned insurance as one example, um, but there's many other systems where individual can, can be engaged in. And so I think what we have to look at both in the short term and long term is what are the other systems that can help support that individual and make sure that those systems can fully embrace and appreciate the skill set that individual needs to develop as a blind person and help provide, you know, we help provide that expertise through a range of different approaches so that that person is simply not left without the services they need. One thing that I will take advantage of here, increasingly across all disciplines, and especially something that we're facing here in California, and that is a whole person, person centered, multi system approach to that individual. I'll give you an example that here in California, we've established a master plan on aging that is really bringing together a cross-representation of all systems to really put together um, that whole person approach. And, And I think there's room for us to do that more and more with all populations and all systems. So um, I'll stop my comments there and give others a chance to weigh in as well. Thank you, Joe. Uh, I'm gonna, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to bounce over Ray and go to Dan. Okay. Um, like, uh, like Joe, I, I, I agree that 
I don't think it is one or the other. I don't think it's mutually exclusive. However, I probably would put a slightly stronger emphasis on saying that we begin the conversation, we begin the dialogue with the newly blinded individual. And I mean, just newly blinded, but they found their way to VR somehow <laughs> by saying to them, I appreciate that this is going to require grieving. You're going to have to live your life differently. There are a variety of programs that can cater to the training that you're going to need in order to be as independent as you want, depending on um, how much time you think you have, depending on whether you were employed and want to return to that job um, prior to your blindness and then again after your blindness. Um, so like Joe, I think we can do both of those things. We can start that training and we can start the looking. But I, I do think that we want to make sure that effective blindness skills represent the foundation of the prerequisite work we do before someone goes out to work. And our state VR agency has just gone through uh, a legislative audit. It occurred prior to my arrival. And um, one of the observations was that blindness services seem to con consume longer than caseloads on a general caseload. And I have consistently, persistently championed the notion that blindness and vision impairment and deaf blindness are disabilities that genuinely, in my view, do require more training or as much training as the most seriously disabled individuals. And as a consequence, blindness VR truly is and ought to be a holistic experience. It is likely to be longer. Um, the legislature wanted to know why we thought it was appropriate to buy someone a measuring cup. And I said, well, if you can't afford to nourish yourself, you're not going to be able to get out and go to work. And if you want to nourish yourself and you're blind and you need to use heat, you're going to need to know how to do that effectively. It can be done, but you need to know how to do it effectively. So like Joe, again, I think these things can happen simultaneously, but I probably would put an emphasis and encourage my counselors to, to introduce the concept of effective blindness skills um, as a means of getting to that employment goal. And I'd also, in addition to blindness skills, offer this. I think a good VR counselor not only wants to promote blindness skills, but should also promote um, an, uh, a philosophy of blindness that is positive. And this isn't ACB or NFB, it's just in general. The VR counselor should give the newly blind consumer a sense that blindness can be managed, blindness can be managed in such a way that you can be successful and that there are strategies out there 
that will allow that to occur. Uh, need to be no more political than that. And I don't think anyone would disagree with any of that. Thank you. Ray, have anything to add? Um, yes, real quickly. Uh, first, I'll say I, I was smiling as both of my colleagues um, talked about a holistic approach. And that has been at the core of my belief for rehabilitation of people who are blind and vision impaired since I've entered this field. And it's certainly what we emphasize here. And, and um, so we look at a whole person because if you have job skills, but do not know how to travel safely and independently, if you cannot feed yourself, if you cannot um, uh, dress yourself in socially accepted ways, if you cannot adhere to social norms, uh, you're not going to be successfully employed. So we understand we need to address a whole person. Um, if we had a, a magic wand and could redesign the system, we might do that. But um, the funding source certainly um, guides our approach. So if we're using vocational rehabilitation dollars, we can't ignore um, the job, but the job doesn't mean that we uh, do not address the whole person. And I'd like to give you one quick example of how we see that entry into employment can come from different spots. A gentleman, uh, first name Jim, came to our rehabilitation center a few years ago for one purpose. He wanted to learn how to use his iPhone. He had gone blind uh, rather suddenly. He uh, was no longer working in a rather high-powered job. And he came to our rehab center just to learn how to use his iPhone. The technology instructor was working with him on his iPhone. He started asking questions about the computer. Then he wanted to know more. He, he wound up enrolling in, in our rehabilitation center. But um, again, we're a VR program. So he came through VR and we had to talk about a job. Long story short, a little bit more than a year after Jim came to us, he returned to work as the national sales director for a, an international company. He did not believe when he went blind that he could work. Fortunately, his employer still saw value in him because they knew they wanted him for his mind, not for whether he could see or not. Through our program, he was able to get the skills that allowed him to return to what he did before. But the main thing is, I, I just make the point, his entree to services was his phone. He wanted to learn how to use his phone. So we, we try to meet you where you are and help you build on those services that, that <clears throat> enable you to make decisions for yourself and to reach your, uh, your goals. And I think that's a basic thing for, um, for what rehabilitation of the blind is all about. 
and the VR program is is how we reach most people. And we're fortunate that we have other state support for independent living services in Virginia, um, but VR still in many ways drives the best. Thank you. Um, unless, um, Chris, unless you have another question, should we, do you wanna to jump to seven? Uh, Chris, I'm just, uh, you are muted. Let me see. Okay, I'm on. Oh, there you go. There you okay, go. yeah. I forgot. I, I thought there was noise in my house. But anyway, um, yeah, the, the magic question project into the future. Where do you see Voc Rehab and all these rehabilitation services in five to 10 years? What do you see? And I guess we can start with. Um, Joe. So let, let me um, set a little stage for this. I think to answer that question, we have to take stock of a few things that have happened and a few things that are going to happen. One is we know that the unemployment rate of people with disabilities and individuals who are blind and visually impaired has really remained unchanged for decades, even 30 years after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. We know that the, the downtrend of VR performance was taking place even before COVID. And COVID did um, no, no favor. And well, I shouldn't say that. COVID really exposed that even more um, than we were aware of um, in the last 18 months or so. We also know that the job market is changing very, very quickly. Um, the jobs that were here in 2019 and the jobs that are gonna be here in 21, 23, 25 are gonna, are gonna change quickly. Artificial intelligence as an example. The gig economy is another example. So automation is going to play a very important role. Think about the fact that we are holding this conference virtually. We never would have thought of doing this back in 2019. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying all that to point out that we had to really change our thinking even before COVID hit us. And COVID not only accelerated the gaps, but it accelerated things that were in place already. I'm saying all that as a short way of saying that VR is in the midst of and must really work hard to change how we think about the job market, to change about what it will take for individuals who are blind and visually impaired to go to work. For, new, for people that are coming to the market today, their first job interview could be virtual and their first job could be virtual. Are they ready? And I don't think they are. Do they know how to position themselves in a video interview? Do they know how to use the underlying technologies that is gonna be necessary? The larger point about categorical services, do I think that the blind and visually impaired will still need to have the unique skills that, that come from that experience? Yes. So the specialized skill, the expertise is still going to be needed. But when you have more and more systems 
that are, are aligning. And Ray spoke to this earlier, how much more we are engaged with so many other systems. We really have to think about how do we bring our expertise into those systems so that they are also doing a better job of helping all people get ready for the workforce. So if VR is to be around, if specialized services to the blind and visually impaired is to exist, we've got to escalate the rethinking and revamping and the delivery of those services. Or um, I fear that um, that erosion is uh, at our doorstep. I'll stop my comments there, Doug, or Chris. I'm sorry. I'll stop my comments there, turn it back to you. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, well, you know, I mean, it, 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 I, I just have one comment. You know, you can't answer a phone in an office anymore without using a computer. You're right. Uh, you just can't do it. When I first went to work, you could use a light probe and you could handle a whole you know, rack of 15 lines and know what you were doing, but that doesn't work that way now. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So who else wants to talk about how their future should roll? I'm happy to offer some perspective. Um, I am, I think um, probably the junior uh, director on this panel, uh, and and yet, you know, I think I've been a director of an agency or agencies for long enough that I can speak with some authority about my view of how VR will um, emerge in in the near to medium term future, five to ten years. Um, I agree that there are members of the Congress who have observed um, a quantifiable and um, and a quantitative a quantifiable and um, and a qualitative yeah and a qualitative drop in services and I know they're troubled by that. But I do think that we're going to have to rely on consumers, professionals, uh, the trade organizations of um, VR and CSABR and NCSAB, and all of us who are deeply invested and who do understand um, why VR is not just a short 30-day um, in-and-out thing, but is in fact a holistic um, program that is designed to um, give you a good life. Um, uh, so I know Congress is troubled by that, but I think we're going to have to be diligent in explaining to them that while those drops are troubling, that there are legitimate reasons for some of those drops. Um, COVID may not have been the primary reason, but it did exacerbate the differences that you see. Um, and I think that VR has existed, um, you know, for 80 years and plus, if you go all the way back to the Smith-Bess Act in 1920, when the people from World War I were coming back. 
And blindness didn't even get put into the VR Act until 1942-43. I think it's here to stay. And I, I often hear concerns that there are going to be substantial changes and that Ooh, the next authorization is very likely to end VR as we understand it. And I suppose that could happen. But I also imagine that in a country such as ours, where collective voices make a difference, that if the professionals and those that we serve um, make a collective presentation in one context or another, if we collaborate with one another, we'll be able to persuade members of Congress that there is a rationale for why that is changing. And um, I'm even open to new ideas about what will make VR more sustainable. But I, I don't think it's going to end. If there are changes, I think there are going to be changes that will be made around the margins. Um, and, uh, but, but mostly I think they, they won't end. And I think that in terms of blindness specific VR services that we all need to hold very close to us, the, the Brenda Kavanaugh, uh, memorandum from Mississippi state, which outlines in, in great detail why the, additional blindness specific services are critical to helping blind and vision impaired people find work. So in summary, and in sh- uh, I'd say in summary and in short, but nothing I've said has been terribly short. <laughs> um, in summary, I think that um, we're going to see changes, but they're gonna be changes around the margin. I do think pr- uh, blindness services will be retained as a distinct service. And thirdly, I think that all of us, no matter our positions as administrators or as consumers, are going to have to work together collaboratively to explain to those who write policies that seem to make sense, um, but oftentimes have unintended consequences I think all of us are going to have to explain to these individuals why there's been a change and why they mustn't abandon VR as an institution that does tremendous good. Well, that's reassuring that we can all get on that and we can all get on the same page is what I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And I hope that my forecast is somewhat accurate and um, optimistic. So, Chris, this is Ray. Let me weigh in real quickly and say this. I'm not a futurist and don't pretend to be, and I can't even predict what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. But what I can say is this. Um, uh, Presently, I lead an agency um, that is in its 100th year of existence and service to the Commonwealth of Virginia. And course, there have been a lot of changes through that, through those years. And as Dan alluded to, when this agency was founded in, in 1922, there was no federal VR program for people who were blind. Uh, the program was new and, and, and it wasn't even believed at that point that people who were blind could work. 
but there still were services being rendered. And as we go forward over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see more changes and it probably is going to be more in the direction of more consolidation of services, uh, more integration of services. Um, and, and I do believe it is, as Dan said, a matter of advocacy as to what's, what's going to exist, what that will look like. But I can say having led this organization more than a decade, and we're presently in a discussion as we spend our 100th year of service uh, building towards our centennial anniversary. We're celebrating all the good things that we've done, but we're hoping that our past will inform our future. And we're talking about what, what's the next iteration? What's our next century of service look like? I, I believe this. Uh, this agency will always have people who want to uh, merge it with somebody else who don't appreciate the value of uh, those specialized services we offer. But the people who receive them know the value. And I believe that, um, that they will insist that there are specialized services. There will be some iteration of categorical services. There will be some efforts to make sure that people who are blind and vision impaired and who are deafblind have the opportunity to work. And I think it's up to advocates to shape what that future is. Um, you know, politicians don't know unless you tell them. And I think, uh, and they don't particularly want to hear from folks like me because they think that, that, that I'm self-serving, that what I say um, uh, has some sort of ulterior motive. Um, so I'm going to say I think it's up to ACB and other consumer organizations and uh, people individually and collectively uh, to shape that future and make their needs known. Well, you've certainly given Doug, us our marching may, orders. <laughs> Go on, Mitch. Doug, Doug, if I may, and Ray kind of answered the question, but I'd like to drill down a little deeper because we know that the uh, separate commissions for the blind have been falling by the wayside uh, over the last decade or more. Um, and we also know that categorical services provide the best opportunity for blind and visually impaired persons to succeed in the work world. And, and I think then I wanna address my specific question to Dan um, because he's been on both sides. He's, he's been with RSA, he's been with a couple of, of commissions. Uh, Dan, based on what you said, um, if there are changes, will those changes involve the, uh, the uh, going away of commissions for the blind? Um, <clears throat> like Ray said, um, Mitch, I think there will be those that will endeavor to, to do that. And like I said in, in my comments, I think it's going to be incumbent 
upon all of us uh, without regard to where we sit at the table as professionals or as consumers, but as a single community that is interested in promoting the welfare of people who are blind to signal to our state legislatures and to Congress that these categorical services are critical and um, that they need to be maintained. Uh, I imagine we'll lose a few more, but I also observe that sometimes we're not losing categorical services when commissions go by the wayside. They're just getting a new facelift and it's a department for the blind now. Um, so it's a, a change in governance. Um, but, um, but, but those are my thoughts. I, I don't think categorical services are going to go away. Uh, commissions as a means, uh, as a governing structure may, may go away, but I think they'll be replaced with, you know, agencies like um, RAISE that's now the Department of Services for the Blind and Vision Impaired. Well, based, and Joe will know this, but something like 20 plus years ago, uh, all, uh, everybody in California got together, the two uh, consumer advocacy organizations, uh, just about every agency serving blind people. We were, as blind people, we were being served in a generic agency, the Department of Rehabilitation, and we initially uh, fought with legislation to get our own commission. We didn't get our own commission, but what we did get was blind field services, and as, it's as close to our own commission or our own department as we, we thought we were going to get. Right. And, and so, you know, that's to your point, uh, perhaps that's, that's the trend. That's where, that's where rehabilitation for our folks will be going. I think that's right. So Mitch, this is right. Let me uh, uh, throw a quick example at you. Um, and by the way, um, you mentioned Dan being in a couple of different uh, entities in RSA. Um, it, it, our timing has been different, but I think we've had some similar experiences in that vein. And, part wow. of, okay. and, and of course, I started in a combined agency. Um, but until 1993, what is now the Oklahoma Department of Rehabilitation Services, that includes two residential schools, the uh, um, the uh, services for the blind, the general VR program, disability termination, all of that was a division of Oklahoma's Department of Human Services. And it became independent basically because of the fight um, by people who were blind. And while that was going on, a, a person voluntarily told me that he and another leader went to uh, the Oklahoma legislature and tried to, they weren't trying to kill the idea of a department. They wanted the department. They were trying to change the structure to diminish the services for the blind. And the person told me that, uh, that this uh, 
leader in the Oklahoma legislature explained to them in no uncertain terms, said, if there's a department, it will be because of the blind people. And so, and he said, there's a much better chance that there would be a separate agency for a blind for the blind than there would be for you to do away with the distinct services for the blind. So. Cool. Yeah. So, well, look at how many ACBers we have in Oklahoma with their 22 votes versus some of us other states with six or five. Um, is there anything else that, uh, Chris or, or Mitch, we got five more minutes. So we want to uh, maybe one quick question. Take a question or two. All right. If someone would like to ask a question, you can raise your hand using old Y on the PC option. Y on the Mac, uh, store, uh, store nine, if you're dialing in on the phone and if you're using a mobile app, it's the raise hand button on your uh, mobile device screen. And the first person we have it says uh j mac um you should be able to unmute to ask your question okay um i have worked in i'm a i'm a clvt and worked in low vision rehabilitation for the past 36 years and i have just retired but i worked with a nonprofit agency a full service nonprofit agency in southern california all of that time and so i've seen a lot of change in department of rehabilitation services over that time as our agency would refer people to the department of rehabilitation as well um mr Xavier, I have a question for you. I'm very interested in what you said about the fact that there's a master plan on on aging, um, because I have seen the consequences of taking away the homemaker program here in California, and have had to deal with those those individuals that came to our our centers. Um, I'm interested to know if that program is in writing someplace uh, and, and if there's something that I can go look at, can you direct me? Yeah, uh, there is. The plan is published. Um, if you go to our um, California Health and Human Services webpage, I'm sure you'll find a link to the master plan on aging information there. Um, and then also an, a person that might be able to give you some additional insights into that plan is Jeff Tom. I think you'll recognize his name from here in California. Mm-hmm. Um, he contributed to, to those conversations. And really it's, it's an effort at looking at multiple, multiple systems that serve the aging population. And in this case, it was saying, and please include disability and Jeff specifically brought the voice of the blind and visually impaired so that the systems are beginning to really think about how do people who are blind visually impaired um, how do they receive services what's the best way for them to get them and make sure that they are um, able to access those services as well all right next we have Pam go ahead if, if it's short, good, please, afternoon. good afternoon gentlemen I just have a quick question having to do with something that several of you have talked about working with the whole person as a blind person. Is VR considering including the families of these blind people while you are engaging with 
the blind person and his or her needs. Well, um, let me say in Virginia, that's already a consideration. There are times that we provide uh, um, uh, services, we, we, but this, this, that's not new. I mean, in the dark ages when I was a counselor, there were times that I authorized for family counseling as well as individual counseling if that was needed. But you've heard us also talk about being engaged with these other systems. And that's the real value is being able to leverage our, our position and to try to bring some other things to bear so that it's not VR in a vacuum, but we're working with others who do provide family services and that we are trying to put together a plan of services that is um, as inclusive of what that person needs as possible. Joe, I have just a quick comment, but as it is someone from your state, would you like the opportunity oh, to go, respond? Go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. Um, I would just say that um, I just designed uh, a new pre-ETS program for New Hampshire uh, and specifically included a component of it that would invite families and TVIs to work with us and the students so that when these students go to their various adults in their lives and talk about what they're learning, all of the adults are going to be on the same page. They're going to have heard what we are doing. They're going to have heard the introduction of the program. And they're going to be as integrated in the, the training as they possibly can be. Um, and so um, we have specifically included families in our pre-ETS programming because, uh, not because, you know, we had reservations because we didn't want families to think that their kids couldn't come alone, and we didn't want the kids to think that, but we decided that it was more important in terms of all being on the same page that we include the families and take them aside and tell them that this is calculated to promote the independence of their children and that we're inviting them to join us so that they can help us convey that message. Not All right, Dan, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to cut you off because we are at time. So I'm going to just provide um, the ending code here for those taking CEU credits. The ending number is 06652. Again, that is 06652. Um, Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe and, and Ray and Dan. Uh, I think this has been a thought-provoking conversation. Mitch, thank you. And uh, Chris, thank you for, uh, for posing these questions. And uh, have everybody have a great convention. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Maria, thank, thank you for, you. for uh, hosting for us. Take care. Sure, you're very welcome. Thanks, Tyson, <laughs> for 